Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, if you have a problem finding it, easiest way is go to Psalms then turn to Proverbs, then to Ecclesiastes, then Song of Solomon, and then right after Song of Solomon, you will find the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. This is going to be, as of right now, a two-part sermon or a two-sermon series, and we will pick up next week with the rest of chapter 6, but I just wanted to cover a few verses at the beginning of chapter 6. And we're calling this series Seated. And you're going to see why very shortly. Uh, the year 2020, as we all know, is the gift that keeps on giving, right? Um, 2020, it just keeps on having surprises, surprises after surprises. A few of us were talking this morning, and I said, we still have three more months. Uh, so um, who knows what these last three months of 2020 will hold. Uh, I have no doubt they will be very interesting. But we do need to remember something in the midst of 2020 or 2021, and we've, we should have been remembering it all along, and that is the truth that God is still seated upon his throne. Regardless of what's going on around us, God is still seated upon his throne. And so I want us to look at this idea of being seated this morning. So in Isaiah chapter 6, starting with verse 1, we find these words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throng, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah has this heavenly vision. He is transported in this vision to the heavenly throne room of God. And he gets a glimpse of God sitting on his throne. God is seated on his throne. And I think it's very important to understand not only historical context of what's going on at this time, but also what are some of the applications that we find for us today if God is truly seated upon his throne? Well, the first thing that we find is that we need to look at is this first phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, some commentators say this is just a dating method. Now, that's true. That does give us a a correlation with a historical event so we know about the time that Isaiah has this vision. But there's more going on than that. King Uzziah came to the throne when he was 16 years of age. He ruled for over 50 years. Now, all in all, King Uzziah was a good king. He did a lot of incredible things for the nation. He had military conquests. He fought off enemies He made lots of improvements. He had building programs. And and he was a worshiper of the one true God. And he called the people to worship God. And so King Uzziah was a good king. And I said largely a good king. 
he was mostly a good king because what happened was this at the end of his reign at the end of his life king uzziah the bible tells us grew proud once he grew strong he grew proud and when he grew proud he decided he didn't need a priest to go into the temple to offer incense he believed he could do it himself and that's exactly what he did he took it upon himself to take upon himself the role of priest and went in to burn incense. Now, some might say, well, that's a good thing. He wanted to go worship God, but he didn't want to do it according to God's way. And God struck him with leprosy and King Uzziah died from being stricken with leprosy. So now we have King Uzziah dying. Imagine this. He's been king for over 50 years and now he's dead. People are wondering what's going to happen to the nation. What kind of king is going to rise up next? What's going to happen when our enemies find out that we have an empty throne room, an empty earthly throne room here in our nation? What's going to happen? We're very concerned. And that brings us to our first point. God rules over uncertain seasons and circumstances. We may have uncertain seasons. We may have uncertain circumstances. Can I just tell you, God never looks at any circumstance with uncertainty. God never scratches his head during any season. There is nothing that can come into our lives that God will look at and say, I don't know what to do with this. Never happens. Because God rules over uncertain seasons and circumstances. Isaiah is saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, In the year of this uncertainty, in the year of this season of uncertainty and doubt and possible fear, in this time, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. In the midst of his uncertainty, in the midst of his fears, in the midst of the national doubts, God was still sitting on the throne. And can I just tell you, he's still sitting on the throne. He's still sitting on the throne in 2020. He'll, be, he'll still be sitting on the throne if the world asks for another 100, 200, 1,000, 2,000 years. He'll still be on the throne. There's never been a time that God's throne has been unoccupied. Never. God has always been on the throne. And he rules over our uncertainty. Listen to Romans chapter 11, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. From him he gives. Through him it's by his means that he gives. And to him they belong to him are all things. Everything is in his hands. Everything. He belongs. All all of that belongs to him. This is why in Psalm 31, verse 15, David can write this. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. My times are in your hand. That does not mean David is saying, well, just my lifespan is in your hand. And whenever you decide my life is over, that's in your hand. No. He is saying everything regarding my life is in your hand. Everything. God, it's all in your hands. My circumstances, my situations, my seasons, my fears, my doubts, all this stuff. It's all in your hand. You rule over all of it. Some of you know my family had a, had a bit of a shock this past week. My, my uncle was diagnosed with COVID-19. I had not seen him in a number of months. And he was hospitalized with that. And he had turned the corner. Actually, my aunt had had it as well. 
And uh, they had not gotten it from each other. It was from some separate infection. And so my aunt got it and she was really, really sick. And she pulled through. God miraculously worked in her life, pulled her through. She got much better. And then my uncle had it. And then last week, my uncle was, was coming out of it. Everything was fine. Talked to my aunt one evening. My aunt left around 530, 11 o'clock that night. The nurse came in to draw blood. He turned his head to sneeze. He sneezed. He was gone. And in an instant, gone. That's it. Gone. We had his funeral yesterday. Now, that was a shock to our family. My dad's only brother. But at the same time, I sit there and I go, his times was in God's hands. That was the time. That was the time. We're thankful for the years we had with him, but, but whenever the time is, that's it. And that was my uncle's time this just past week at 11 something in the evening. And in and, and an instant, and this is it. God rules over uncertain seasons and circumstances. My times, your times are in his hand. Everything related to our life, it's in his hands. And that's what we find in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, the Bible doesn't say all things are good. There are some bad things. There are some dark threads woven in with those golden threads. But all things work together for good. Why does that work? That's God's doing. God's the one who weaves in the dark threads and the light threads. God's the one who takes all the bad stuff and the good stuff and the stuff people meant for evil and the stuff people meant for harm. And he weaves that into his ultimate plan. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But this is the reality. It's not in your notes, but in Psalm 115, verse 3, the psalmist writes, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. When's the last time God stopped before he acted and said, Hey, I'd like to ask your permission for something? Never. God doesn't ask our permission. God acts. He sits on his throne. He's in heaven. And he does as he pleases. Because he's God. And we have to view everything through that reality. I posted a, a thing on Instagram the other day, and it upset some people. Imagine that, you know. I told Rebecca, I said, you know, just for those people I haven't offended just yet, just wait your turn. <laughs> it's coming. Um, but I, but I, posted on, I posted on Instagram, and I got a, a couple of people respond to me and said, I don't, I don't know about that. Well, it's true. What I posted was this. I said, if your view of reality is more influenced by the cable news than the biblical good news, then you will become more focused on who is in office than who is on the throne. And that's the reality. Regardless of who's in office, that's four years or maybe eight years, God is eternally on his throne. And we have to remember that. We have to understand over the uncertain seasons, over the uncertain circumstances, God is still on his throne. A phrase that I have heard a good bit lately is this. I know God is still on his throne, but I just want you to know I'm really worried about this, 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 this. Can I just tell you the word order of that sentence is backwards. We need to be able to say not, well, I know God is on the throne, but I'm worried about these things. We need to be able to say, I may be concerned about these things, but the final word is, God is still on his throne. Always and always and always. Where is it that you're facing the most uncertainty? Fear, doubt, anxiety. Can I just tell you? God rules over that. God's bigger than that. 
God is still on his throne in the midst of that. God is still God. And by the way, I am learning more and more in my life that God is better able to be God than I can be God. I know that's a shock, but God is much better at that job than I am. And God is much better at being God over my life than I am being Lord of my life. And it's the same with all of us. So God rules over uncertain seasons and circumstances. Secondly, God rules over the leaders and the nations of the earth. God rules over the leaders and nations of the earth. Notice it says in in Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. He is not only lifted up and exalted, the idea is he is high and lifted up and exalted above everybody else. All the nations, all the rulers, everything and everyone else. And it says, in the train of his robe filled the temple. The edge of his robe, the, the royal train that the king might wear that would flow down the steps in the king's throne room. There are two basic ideas of this big train. One is for a king to have a long robe was to show that he didn't have to move because there were people who would go and do the work for him. The longer your train, the more you were communicating to those who looked upon you, people served you because you didn't move real fast in a robe. And if your robe was big enough, then you didn't have to do anything. You could just sit on your throne because you had people to go and serve you. So we have God's robe, the train of his robe, the edge of his robe, just the very edge of his robe, filling the temple. But not only that, there's another thing. Some of these kings during this time had a practice that isn't talked about a whole lot. But the practice was this. Whenever you defeated another king, you would go find his royal robe and they would take a piece of his royal robe. They would cut off a piece of his train and they would take that in some instances and they would attach it to the conquering king's train. And so over time, this king may have this incredible large patchwork quilt of other king's trains tacked onto his to show I defeated that one and 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 that one. I own them. I rule over them. I have conquered them. So you have God's train, the the train of his robe filling the temple. Not only do people serve him for he remains seated upon the throne, but also there is this idea they would have understood in this time of God has conquered everybody. And so how does God rule over the leaders and nations? Well, first of all, he rules over their positions. He rules over their positions. Isaiah 40, 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up coastlands, coastlands like fine dust. The nations are like a drop in the bucket compared to God. God is saying, you take a big bucket, put one drop in it. That's like all the nations. I can do with them as I please. I can raise them up. I can bring them down. This is what we find in the book of Daniel. Daniel is called upon to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this pagan king's dream. And whenever Daniel prays and talks to God, this is what happens. Daniel, God is revealing to him 
in the interpretation of the dream, listen to Daniel's words. Daniel 2, starting with verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. He says he, set, he removes kings and he sets up kings. This is what we find when God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and we find in Daniel chapter 4, verse 31, it says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God tells Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to live like a wild animal, and you're going to graze on grass. I'm going to send you into a state of madness until you get it in your head and in your heart that I rule over all the kingdoms of the world, and I can give those kingdoms to whomever I want to give those kingdoms, because that is within my right to do so. God rules over the positions. And regardless of how you feel politically, and regardless of how you feel that he's doing mentally, Kanye West got it right. When Kanye West said, whoever is president, it's because God says so. And I know, I know some people say, yeah, but Kanye's, Kanye's a little out there. Yes, but he got that part right. That's just biblical. God sets up kings. God takes down kings. And, and you, you say, well, I don't, I don't know about that. That's Old Testament. How about New Testament? How about when Jesus is talking to Pilate and Pilate is telling Jesus about all the authority that he has. Listen to John 19, 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And then he goes on. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Therefore, Judas and or the Roman leaders they're, they're at fault. But Pilate, the only reason that you have this power is because it was given to you from above. Even this pagan, even this, this, this Roman governor was in place, Jesus says, because God willed it to be so. That's the only reason you have any power at all. It's been given to you. That's it. That's it. So God rules over their positions, the leaders and the nations of the earth. He rules over their positions. He rules over their decisions. Listen to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Listen to Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God rules over them. And you find over and over in the Bible instances where God intervenes. We looked at it when we went through the book of Habakkuk. God raised up the Babylonians to come against his people to bring judgment upon his people. And then he turns around and he judges the Babylonians for what they did. Because it was their choice to do so. But yet God had planned that. Because they are being used by God. Well, how do we make sense of that? Well, you find in Isaiah chapter 10 verse 15... Isaiah writes this, and these, this is about the nations that God uses in that way. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? 
or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it. As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. He's saying that you don't have an axe or a saw or a rod or a staff exercising rule over the person who holds it. It doesn't happen. Why? Because here's the truth. We will either live as humble servants of God or useful tools of God. You find, we, we can look around the world. We can look and we can look at nations that are being ruled over in evil ways, in harsh ways. And we can say, God, what are you doing there? God is saying, that's a useful tool for me to fulfill my purpose. We may not get it, but that's a useful tool. I don't want to be a useful tool. I want to be a humble servant. I want to be used by him and humbly line up with him. The useful tools don't even realize they're being used as a tool. As one writer said, they do exactly what they wanted to do and exactly what plan, what, what God planned that they do. They did exactly what they wanted to. It was their choice, but it's exactly what God planned to do. And, and God can sovereignly do that. Let me give you two examples out of the many that we find in the Bible. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. First of all, let's talk about King Cyrus. Let me, let me read this to you about King Cyrus. This is in Isaiah chapter 44, starting with verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, now this is, this is God's words, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. God says this Cyrus, he is going to help rebuild Jerusalem. Isaiah 40 or 45 on with the next chapter. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you or I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And we read this in Isaiah 44 and 45 and we say, okay, God's talking about Cyrus. Yes, God's talking about Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus comes to the throne. This is before Cyrus is even born. God has a prophecy and says, there's this guy, his name is Cyrus. Well, who named him? Did his parents name him? Yeah, but God named him before his parents named him. God named him before he was even a thought. And God says, there's going to be this guy named Cyrus, and he is going to be the one who is going to help rebuild Jerusalem. Thus, I have said this. He's going to be the one, Cyrus. He's the guy. Nobody knew everybody. Do you know a Cyrus? I don't know a Cyrus. I've never heard of a Cyrus. Right, because it's 150 years later, Cyrus rises to power. We find in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that is, that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. So Isaiah prophesies about Cyrus by name. Jeremiah prophesies about Jerusalem being rebuilt. The Lord 
stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And that is, you can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Notice what happened. God said, there's going to be a guy, his name is going to be Cyrus, and he is going to help rebuild Jerusalem. He's going to help rebuild the temple. He's going to help rebuild the city. That's what's going to happen. He's going to be the one to do that. 150 years later, during the day, during the year of his first reign, God stirs up his heart. God does a work in Cyrus's heart. And Cyrus says, you know what? You got, hey, y'all, y'all go back and rebuild your city. Who did that? God. How? He's ruling over the nations and he's ruling over the leaders. We find it in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Luke chapter two, verse one. Just one verse. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So what happens? Everybody goes back to their hometown, their ancestral hometown, to pay taxes and to be registered. So Mary and Joseph go back to Bethlehem, which was foretold in in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, who are too little be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth me, one who is to be for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. You realize there were two Bethlehems during this time? And in Micah, God specifies which Bethlehem of the two is the one that the Messiah is going to come out of. He's going to come out of Bethlehem Ephrathath, a particular one of the two. And yet now what do we find in Luke chapter two? A decree goes out from Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus said, you need to go back to your hometown. So they go back to Bethlehem to be registered. God is ruling over the nations and he's ruling over the leaders of the nations. Now, here's what some people would say. If God's ruling over the nations and God God is ruling over the leaders of the nations, then that means that we can be inactive. That means we can be fatalistically inactive. Because if God's going to do what God's going to do, then there's no sense in me doing anything at all. Because God's going to do what God's going to do. That sounds very convincing. Except there's a problem with that. The Bible never says that. In fact, listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Why even pray? Because God has chosen to sovereignly work through the prayers of his people to accomplish his will. Now, I don't understand all the particulars of that. But it's through prayer that God does his work and does his will. He fulfills his will through that. Why do we need to pray for our leaders? Why do we need to pray for the nations? Because it is through prayer that God works. It's not a matter of us just saying, hands off, I don't have to do anything at all. I shouldn't be involved in this spiritually speaking. I should just back up because God's going to do what God's going to do. God works through the prayers of his people. So God rules over the nations. God rules over the leaders. But that doesn't mean that we are, we are fatalistically inactive. In fact, we should be faithfully active. We have the freedom to do so, to be faithfully active in the midst of these times of uncertainty. So God rules over uncertain seasons and circumstances. God rules over the leaders and the nations of the earth. And God rules over all creation to accomplish his eternal plan. Back in Isaiah, you have the seraphim, these, these angelic beings, the, literally the burning ones. They shine with the glory uh, that they have. And they have six wings, 
two wings they're covering their feet because those are considered uh, humble places lowly places so they cover their feet as a sign of humility they cover their faces so they're not looking upon the glory of god and with the two other wings they're flying and they cry out holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory he is a holy 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 god and the whole earth is full of his glory God rules over all creation to accomplish his eternal plan. And he does so with absolute holiness. Absolute holiness as he rules over all creation. Listen to Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. I was talking to somebody just the other day. And we were having a discussion about everything that's going on in America. And I just made a comment. I said, listen, I love America. But can I tell you something? Do you realize America's only been around for 244 years? 244 years. Depending on how you measure a generation, generation that's somewhere between seven and ten generations. 244 years. What, what does God do whenever, if America had a downward turn? And I'm not saying we want that, but if America took a downward turn after 244 years, which in the grand scheme of world history is a blip on the radar, but for 244 years we've been a nation, what if America took a dramatic downturn? What would God do? I've heard people say that. What's God going to do if America goes downhill? God's going to do what he's been doing before 1776, which is rule on his throne with holiness. That's what he's going to do. Period. We want our country to succeed. We want our country to grow. We want our country to be strong. But even if it does not, like, the, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about to be thrown in the fiery furnace, our God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. Listen, our God is still on the throne regardless of what happens in America. God is still king regardless of who's president. God is still ruling regardless. God rules over all creation to accomplish his eternal plan. Listen to Psalm 2. Sometimes when I'm watching the nightly news and I go, I remember Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These, these rulers of the world, the psalmist writes, they're setting themselves up against God. They're setting themselves up against his anointed Jesus. And they're saying, we are going to do what we want to do. Notice verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. God laughs. Oh, you got plans, do you? Oh, <laughs> yeah, you got plans. I got plans. I got plans that overrule your plans. And the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God tells Jesus, you, you, They're all yours. They're all yours. I'll sit on my throne and laugh. They got plans. I got plans. I got plans that overrule their plans. 
This is why we find in Psalm 33, verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. You see, the issue is the world does not believe that God is on the throne. But the church's problem is that we forget God is on the throne. The world says, no, no, no. We don't believe there is a God. We don't believe there is a throne, except for the throne I'm going to occupy. God's people need to remember there is a throne, and we have a God, and he is on that throne. Listen to Isaiah 49, verse, 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old. Now, let me time out. Let's do a little grammar. Look at how many times God refers to himself in this passage. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God is saying, this is very much about me, my power, my rule, my plan. And I will declare things from that from the beginning, things that have not yet happened yet. I rule over all creation and I will accomplish my eternal plan. That's what we can take comfort in. God's going to accomplish his eternal plan and we get to be a part of it as his humble servants. If we are his followers, we don't just have to operate as a useful tool, as an ax or a saw or a rod or a staff in the hand of God. We can be in an intimate love, personal relationship with the Lord God, King of the universe, and we can be his humble servants. And we can come before him and we can say like Isaiah will will see next week, here I am, send me. I want to be a humble servant for God, not just a useful tool. So what do we make of all this? Well, let me end with, with this. The intertestamental period, you, you read through the Old Testament, you get to Malachi. And then you pick up later with, with Matthew. And it's easy to say, okay, well, there's this break in between. In your Bible, there may be a couple of pages that talk about a couple of things in between. That 400 or some odd years of, we talk, we talk about prophetic silence. Nothing's written in the Bible during those times or nothing is recorded in the Bible during those times. But let me tell you, that doesn't mean that nothing was happening in, in the world during that time. Let me, let me give you this story. In 356 BC, around there, 355, 356, there was this baby that was born. Now that's, that's, that's there in that intertestamental period. Between Malachi and Matthew, there's this baby born, 356 BC. He was born to royalty. His dad was King Philip of Macedon. In fact, King Philip, later his name, Philip, was given to a particular city, Philippi. We have the Church of Philippians. And, and the city of Philippi was named after King Philip of Macedon. Well, this baby was Alexander, who became Alexander the Great. And as a child growing up, he learned about warfare from his dad. 
But historians tell us that his mother was super influential. His mother would tell Alexander things like, you descended from the gods. You're part divinity. You got a special purpose, Alexander. Now they were pagans, but you, you have a purpose. He was also highly influenced by his tutor, Aristotle, who was the, the beginning of much of philosophy. So you have the tutor Aristotle teaching and teaching young Alexander about science. He's teaching him languages. He taught him how to read Hebrew. He taught him how to read all these other foreign languages. And so here's Alexander getting tutored by this world-class scholar, Aristotle. And here's his mom speaking into his ear, telling him all these things. And before his dad was killed, his dad's teaching him about warfare and all sorts of other things. And you might know the story. Alexander, as he grew older, he began to, he began to go out and he began to go on these conquests. And he was spreading Greek culture all throughout the known world. From east to west, his army just marched and conquered over and over and over and over and over and over. And one day, they closed in on Jerusalem. During this intertestamental period, they close in on Jerusalem. And as they're closing in on Jerusalem, the high priest of Jerusalem, along with some other uh, people from the temple, meet Alexander out on the roadway. Now, this is really odd. Because here's Alexander, he's marching toward this city to conquer it. And now they don't send a war party. They don't send generals. They don't send rulers. They send out the priest. And the priest goes up to Alexander. And as Alexander sees him in the distance, the story goes that Alexander dismounts from his horse and walks up that roadway by himself, which was very odd for uh, Alexander to do. You may be walking into a trap. You may be walking into an ambush. But he was asked by one of his commanders, why did you do that? Alexander said, I had a dream a while ago. And I saw that guy in my dream dressed in those robes. So I needed to talk to him. He meets with the high priest. And the high priest says, I want you to come with me into the city. And Alexander follows him into the city and they go into the temple. And the high priest pulls out some scrolls and he opens up the scrolls and he goes to the book of Daniel. And he invariably, it says that he reads from the book of Daniel, invariably he had to have read from Daniel chapter 8 to Daniel chapter 11 because that is the passage that prophesies a king who is going to rise up who will defeat these armies. And it is a prophecy, though it's not mentioned by name, it is a prophecy about Alexander. And the high priest unrolls the scroll and Alexander, because he's been tutored by Aristotle who taught him Hebrew, Alexander is able to read this scroll in the original Hebrew language and realize that's me. He tells the priest, what do you want? Name it. They tell him, we want to continue to have our festivals. We want to continue to worship as we see to worship. You got it. He also gave him a tax break. The Samaritans the Samaritans who were considered half Jewish, when they found out how nicely that Alexander had treated the Jews, they were like, well, we're kind of Jewish too. You, you, you know, we're kind of Jewish. Maybe you could treat us the same way. Why do we mention this? Well, because for many years, the Jewish people enjoyed kind of a protected special status 
in the Greek empire. They didn't come in and in most cases they would come in and just kind of put down everybody else's culture so that they had to adopt the Greek language and the Greek culture. Now the Greek language was very well known. So then what happens? After the Greeks fall from power, the Romans step in. But did the Romans try to make everybody speak Latin? No, because everybody around spoke Greek. So that was the language of the empire. The most common language was Greek. And not only that, the Roman war machine was keeping down any sorts of rebellions. And they were harsh and they were cruel, but they were keeping down rebellions. And so in order for that Roman army to go anywhere in the empire, they built this vast Roman road system so that they could very quickly and speedily, without hindrance, get from one place in the empire to another place as quickly as they possibly could. And so because of the peace of Rome, because of their might, everybody was able to travel more or less freely within the empire from nation to nation, from nation to nation, and trade and travel opened up and people were exchanging all sorts of ideas. And there was this going and coming all throughout the Roman empire, even though it was a terrible pagan nation who spoke Greek. And then you have in Galatians chapter four, verse four, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son in the fullness of time. And we have the vast majority of the New Testament written in Greek. And the Roman road system allowed the gospel to be spread throughout the known world at an unprecedented rate. And because of the peace of Rome that ruled over the empire, people could freely travel from one country to another country to another country, and the gospel spread like wildfire. Why? Because Alexander had a dream? Yes, Because Alexander's mom told him you're special? Yes. Because Aristotle taught him Hebrew? Yes. But ultimately because Daniel chapter 8 through 9, because God said it was going to be so. And it's through that message that we're sitting here today because of the spread of the gospel, because of God's perfect plan. So what do we make of this? God rules over all things. God is still on his throne. Our issue is much the same as most pagan kings. We want to sit on the throne of our own heart and rule over our own lives. But we will not know what it is like to live as humble servants to the Lord God who is high and lifted up until we surrender to his son. And when we surrender to his son, we are saying, I want to be a part of your kingdom I do not want to be a part of the kingdom of darkness anymore. I don't want to be controlled by these sinful desires anymore. I am incapable of doing anything on my own to accomplish anything worthwhile. I can't break out of this sin on my own. But King Jesus, you came, lived a perfect life, and you died my death for me in my place so that if I follow you, if I surrender to you, if I relinquish control completely and totally to you and trust what you did, then not only are you my savior, you are my Lord. You are the king over my life. I am no longer on the throne of my own life, but you are installed in your rightful place as king over my life, just as you are king over all creation. And now I can serve you as a humble servant. That's what God calls us to do. That's what he calls us to do. And God is seated. He is seated 
in the heavenly places. He is seated upon his throne. He is high and he is lifted up. And we need to see him as being enthroned. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful that you're king and we're not. Father, you rule over all things. You rule over history. You rule over the nations. You rule over who occupies different positions, different offices. Father, it doesn't mean that we're fatalistic and inactive. Father, it means that we're active and we're faithful to you. We're faithful to do what you've called us to do, to pray as you've called us to pray. Father, we're thankful that you rule over all things. Father, there are people here today, circumstances and situations and the seasons going on in their lives right now. Father, they're, they're weighed down. They're burdened down. There's uncertainty. There may be fear. There may be doubt. Father, I pray that you would let them know that you rule over those circumstances. Father, I pray that you would help us all to understand that you occupy the throne no matter who occupies the overall, Oval Office. Father, I pray that we would understand that you are working your perfect plan and your plan will be accomplished. The earth will be full of your glory. It's about you. It's always been about you. It always will be about you. No one will be receiving the glory that you receive ever. You are the only one who can rightly deserve that. Father, we give you that glory. We give you that praise. We want to see you high and lifted up. Not just on the throne of heaven, but on the thrones of our hearts, God. May we know you as the king of the universe. Father, I pray now that you would go before us during this time. Father, if there's any decision that needs to be made, whether someone's here present with us or maybe they're, they're watching digitally, virtually, Father, I pray that today would be the day that someone would say, I surrender to you, King Jesus. I surrender to your rule and reign over my life. I surrender to your purpose. I surrender to to your call. I surrender to you today. And Father, I pray for those who do know you. Father, I pray whatever fear, anxiety, doubt, uncertainty we may be facing, Father, remind us who you are. Remind us where you sit upon your throne and remind us of how you rule because you are holy, holy, holy. May we never forget. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.